Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 1, and we will be rereading the verses we read last week, but today we'll be reading verses 1 through 17, and again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Last week, we began a walk through what is arguably the most significant epistle in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans. We noted last week that it is one of the most quoted books of the Bible, and we also made mention of the importance this book played in the lives of key religious figures throughout church history, individuals for whom the Holy Spirit used this letter 
to open their blind eyes to understand how they might have a righteousness that was fully acceptable to Almighty God. And we spent time reflecting on the Apostle Paul and how he describes himself in these opening verses, as well as several doctrinal issues that he covers in just a couple of amazing sentences. And if you were not with us last week, then let me encourage you to go online and listen to the first sermon in our series as we looked at the introduction of this letter. We also noted that the recipients of this letter were the saints in Rome, but we did not have sufficient time to explore that, and I simply want to address that for a bit as we begin today. For Paul was very much interested in coming to Rome in order that he might spend time with these saints, the majority of whom he had never met. We are fairly certain that this church was not one that was founded by any of the apostles, least of all by Paul. We know from Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles that Paul crisscrossed Asia Minor, that he ventured into Greece on his missionary journeys, but that he never ventured as far west as Rome. We also know that Paul's aim was to go where others had not yet been. He will say towards the end of this letter, and I'm quoting here, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, if that be the case, and Paul is consistent, then it implies that the founding of the Roman church was not by any of the other apostles either, because Paul would then be reluctant to go there, knowing that some other apostle had already done so, having laid a foundation. So it raises the question, how did this church in Rome come into being? Well, again, we know from the book of Acts that on the day of Pentecost, there were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. These were listed among all the various regions of the known world that Luke itemizes there as being witnesses to the remarkable work of the Holy Spirit who gifted the disciples of Christ with supernatural abilities to proclaim the gospel in foreign tongues so that all the world might know the truth about God's proffered salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. These Roman visitors, both Jews and proselytes, proselytes meaning Gentile converts to Judaism, would have heard the good news, and some, perhaps even many, would have responded in faith to Peter's sermon, and at the end of the Feast of Weeks, which is why they were in Jerusalem to begin with, they would have returned to their homes, carrying the gospel with them. We also know from the book of Acts that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, a phrase which may be in reference to the crowds gathered for the Feast of Weeks, but which may also refer to less transient transplants who also were captivated by Peter's sermon 
and came to faith in Christ that day as well. Now initially, dwelling in Jerusalem, they may have been largely left alone given their genealogy. But once the stoning of Stephen occurred and persecution of Christians began in earnest, we are told that many believers were scattered first to Judea and then Samaria, but then into Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch and Syria as that persecution widened. Now, while the scriptures do not tell us how far some of these first-generation believers fled to avoid persecution, it is not hard to imagine that there may have been some who eventually returned to their countries of origin, some returning even to Rome. But we also know that the trade routes of world commerce traversed Asia Minor and the Near East. And so it is not beyond the scope of reason to believe that there were Roman businessmen and women who who came into contact with these scattered saints, perhaps in Antioch of Syria, which was the third largest city in the empire. And they were moved by the Holy Spirit to believe the gospel, and then they brought this good news home with them. And it continued to reach family and neighbors because of their commercial dealings. So in this sense, the founding of the church in Rome was not due to the evangelistic labor of any one apostle, but was the result of God's Holy Spirit reaching God's elect through a wide variety of gospel outlets, all of which were proclaiming the good news concerning Christ Jesus. So their assembly in Rome, their gathering together as a church, was also undoubtedly due to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure we've all heard the saying that birds of a feather flock together, and there is something about the spirit of regenerate believers that resonates with other regenerate believers, no matter where you are in the world. So even if you are traveling abroad and your path crosses that of another disciple of Christ, you may have an inkling that they are a disciple by observing their demeanor or their mannerisms or their response to others or their unbridled joy. And so you are inclined to strike up a conversation, to inquire. And if you discover that they too know Jesus, you may enjoy some fellowship with a saint whose faith enriches you and your faith enriches them. Well, one can easily imagine a small group of new believers traveling from Jerusalem back to Rome after Pentecost, talking about what transpired, learning that they were all baptized into the faith of Jesus Christ as Lord, and then gravitating towards one another through the Spirit of God now dwelling within their hearts. And in this way, the fellowship of the saints in Rome found its genesis. And from that day on, they continued to find other believers residing in Rome, as well as making new disciples through the gospel that they first received. Well, depending on when this letter was written, and scholars date it between A.D. 54 and 58, and that the church was indeed founded in the way that we've just discussed, then it means that the church in Rome has already been in existence for 20 to 25 years by the time that Paul writes to them. 
And over that period of time, they have become a more established church with a faith that, according to Paul, is known throughout the world. This is a testament to this church, given that they find themselves bearing witness in the belly of the beast, where many of the Caesars expected to be treated as deities. In his Philippian letter, which Paul will write from Rome while he is imprisoned there, he closes that letter by saying, The brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, without going into great detail here, this broad designation would have referred to anyone who was numbered among the staff and the servants of the palace on Palatine Hill. This would have included slaves as well as others who were employed in service to Caesar, both Jews and Gentiles. These would have been uh, individuals that uh, had come to faith and were employed in the, in the palace there. And I would submit to you that their conversion to Christ was not due to Paul's ministry while under house arrest in Rome, as much as it was due to the faithfulness of these saints in Rome who shared Paul's obligation to proclaim the gospel to one and all. Now this may have been behind Paul's comment that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. And as a result, Paul is eager to spend time in fellowship with them so that they might be edified by the gospel that he proclaims and that he might be edified by their fellowship and their faithfulness. Over the time of their existence, they have developed into a church that has both Jews and Gentiles in their membership, And as we make our way through the letter, we will see that there are moments when Paul is addressing the Gentile believers and other times when he has the Jewish believer in mind and then moments when they are collectively being addressed. But part of what makes this letter so powerful is that we find in this Roman church the image that God has for a called-out people. It was never God's intention to call a people unto himself that was of only one tribe or of one nation. God's plan was always to have a people in relationship with himself that came from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And to accomplish that, God called one man, Abraham. And from that one man, all the nations of the earth would be blessed because Abraham would serve as the forefather of faith and what it meant to be saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, if you wonder how Abraham could believe in Christ alone, you need to take time this afternoon, perhaps, to go back and reread Genesis 22, where Abraham says to his son Isaac, whom he is escorting to Mount Moriah, where he plans to sacrifice him, that God will provide for himself the lamb for the sacrifice. Or in John 8, 56, when Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. This speaks to us that from the very beginning of that covenant, Abraham understood 
that God was his Savior and that it was by faith alone in this gracious God that Abraham had any eternal hope. So the church in Rome is a fellowship of Jewish and Gentile believers who have experienced the reality of what Paul says to the Galatians, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is the church that Paul indicates he has been desirous of spending time with, but has been providentially hindered from doing so. But what he has been doing is interceding in prayer on their behalf, thanking God for them, mentioning them always, he says in his prayers. And here is a glimpse into the pastoral heart of this apostle, who based upon his correspondence must have had an enormous prayer list, for he frequently tells others that he is bringing their names before God's throne in prayer, seeking God's grace and power and peace to fall upon them in sustaining ways. But one of Paul's specific prayer requests is that God would pave the way for him to reach Rome so that they might be mutually blessed for their time together. Paul desires to share some spiritual gift with them, and he desires to hear how God has been growing them in the faith and together they will be enriched by their encounter. Now, it might be safe to assume that Paul is coming to the conclusion that his role in reaching Asia Minor and Greece with the gospel is drawing to a close. And so he is beginning to set his sights further west, even as far as Spain, he tells them. And as we intimated last week, it may be that part of Paul's desire to spend time in Rome is to establish a new base of operations from which further missionary journeys might originate every couple of years, as Antioch in Syria has done for the past many years. Now, while this is speculation, there is no mistake that Paul's desire to be with them is sincere. For he says no less than three times in the span of just a couple of verses that he is looking forward to being with them. And that eagerness may stem from what he says in verse 14, where he says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to both the wise and to the foolish. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, Paul carries with him a unique sense of the implications of the gospel. He was deeply aware that God's covenant with Israel was such that God's favor was first expressed to Abraham, but with an eye towards the whole world. God's grace was shown to Abraham and to his descendants in a multitude of ways that Paul will itemize later in chapter 9. The Jews had a front row seat to God's amazing grace, and yet the hardness of their hearts caused them to reject the long-awaited Messiah. But even still, because of God's own faithfulness to his covenant with them, God insisted that the Jews be given every opportunity to turn to Christ in faith when the gospel was proclaimed. And so the gospel was first proclaimed in Jerusalem and in Judea. 
And then it moved into Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. And even Paul, when he would venture out on his missionary journeys, though he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, he would first seek out the Jews in synagogues everywhere he went to proclaim God's good news to them first of all. But he also understood that the gospel was not intended for the Jews only. Because God's vision went far beyond one people group. It went to every people group. It went to every socioeconomic group. It went to every class of people. And this is what Paul is indicating here. He is obligated, he is indebted to preach to those who are the most cultured people in the world as well as to those who are the most crude. He's obligated to preach to those who are highly educated as well as to those who have no education at all. And his approach is wonderfully declared in his first Corinthian letter when he says, Therefore I am free from all. I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So this is the sense of obligation that Paul is speaking of to the Romans. Whether his hearers are highly educated professors of the academy or simply commoners accustomed to the most menial labor, whether his hearers consider themselves the toast of the town or the local dullard, Paul understands that they all need the gospel and the gospel that Paul preaches can be understood by all for he offers it in a fashion that everyone can understand. So what is the essence of this gospel that he proclaims? Well, the answer to that is found in verses 16 and 17, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now this is what the rest of Paul's letter expounds. This is the kernel of the message that this ambassador carries to every person he encounters who is curious enough to listen. That our salvation is the result of God imputing to us a righteousness that is not our own, but belongs to another, and it comes to all those who believe God's announcement. It is received not by works, but rather it is received by faith. And Paul makes it a point to declare that he is not ashamed of the gospel. There were many in Paul's day who found the gospel to be a ridiculous notion. 
The message of a crucified Savior was a foolish idea to the Greeks who valued a more philosophical and intellectual means of salvation. The Jews found Paul's message to be abhorrent when they heard of a Messiah who was crucified on a tree. The idea that salvation was all of God and required nothing more than faith on their part ran counter to all they ever knew. And there are many in our day who hold similar views about the gospel. The gospel does not resonate with the proud who balk at the notion of humbling themselves before an unseen God. It does nothing for the self-righteous who believe they are their own saviors doing all that is necessary to merit salvation. The gospel does not appeal to the powerful who see it as a crutch for the weak. The simplicity of the gospel is considered elementary to those who are intellectually gifted. And to those who revel in their sin, the gospel is nothing more than a fairy tale meant to instill guilt. And to those who find security and material gain, the gospel is considered a balm for losers. To preach to crowds like that requires a level of courage and assurance for they will seek to cancel us in our day and in our age. But if we know that there is no other name given among men by which we may be saved, then we can proclaim the gospel without fear and without shame for we know that the proud and the self-righteous and the powerful, and the intellectually gifted, and the rich, and the profligate, have absolutely no hope apart from the salvation that God offers to them in the cross of Christ. Paul knew that the gospel was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He knew that when the word of Christ was proclaimed, the Spirit of God used the gospel in indescribable ways in the hearts and minds of unconverted men and women to bring them to faith in Christ. Like a sharp two-edged sword, the Spirit took the word of God and cut through all the spiritual resistance and hardness of heart and revealed what people did not know about themselves and about God and open their eyes to see and their ears to hear something new. And the new thing they heard was that they could stand before the holy God of the universe, the one who made them. And though they were dreadful sinners, they could be judged righteous because God made them so through faith alone in Christ alone. Now it was at this very verse that Martin Luther's entire perspective on the Bible changed. Martin Luther was a German monk who was plagued night and day over the fact that God's law made demands upon him that he knew he could not keep. And no matter how hard he tried, he continually failed. And in light of that failure, Luther understood that the only thing that he rightly deserved from God was judgment and wrath. He knew that God was holy. He knew that he was a sinner. And he knew that a sinner standing in the presence of the most holy God would be consumed by the sheer magnitude of God's awesome glory. 
At the same time, he knew that God required that we be holy as he is holy. But Luther could not reconcile, could not rectify in his own mind how this was possible. Because try as he might, he could not be holy. He always failed. And then one day he was studying this letter and it was at this verse. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That is, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That he glanced at a manuscript from Augustine and found where Augustine said that the righteousness here is not God's righteousness, but that righteousness which God provides for people who do not have any righteousness. And in that moment of spiritual illumination, Luther realized that what was meant here was not God's retributive justice, but the righteousness freely imputed to the sinner by God's sovereign grace on the basis of Christ's substitutionary atonement and made the sinner's own possession by means of God-given faith. And when the great reformer made the discovery that Romans 1.17 speaks about God's gracious verdict of righteousness pronounced upon the believer, he experienced the happiest day in his life. Luther would later refer to this righteousness as an alien righteousness, meaning that it is not something that we find within ourselves but rather it is the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ, that is graciously given to all who believe. And you see, this is the only way in which any of us can ever hope to be saved. And when we come to grips with the demands of the law and God enables us to see ourselves for what we truly are, guilty sinners, standing condemned, awaiting a verdict that will undoubtedly cast us into outer darkness for eternity when the reality of that has settled upon us and we have wearied ourselves trying to fix it on our own, we are then awakened to a way out of the predicament. And it is a way that seems almost too good to be true until we realize that the offer comes from a loving God who from all eternity past has developed a plan that will save by the perfect work of a perfect man who happens to be God graciously wearing our humanity. And that God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, becomes sin for us so that we might receive his righteousness. Not through anything we do, but simply because of the loving mercy and kindness of God. It is offered to us by grace and we receive it by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now there is so much that is buried in this sentence that it is going to take us weeks basically to unpack it. And even then, we will only scratch the surface. But as we draw this message to a close, let me simply say that God wants us to comprehend the gospel that is found here. That is, that our salvation is not to be found anywhere else. Every other faith boils down to one thing. You and I working our way up to heaven. 
That's what religion offers and holds out to every other person. The Bible tells of how God came down to us out of His great mercy, for He knew there was no way for us to ascend to where He is. The Bible tells of how God took away our sin through Christ's death on the cross and imputed to us the righteousness of Christ in order that we might be able to boldly come before God's throne of grace and make our requests known to Him. And the deeper we understand the gospel, the more amazing God's grace becomes. I hope that you will stay with us on this journey through the book of Romans and that God's Spirit will awaken you just as the Spirit awakened Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Wesley and Edwards and the saints in Rome and so many others to the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray together.